Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. This is the true story of Craig Rabinowitz, his wife, Stephanie, and an exotic dancer named Summer. It's a story of lust. Summer was a master manipulator, and Craig just wanted her more and more. Deception. Nobody knew it, but at the same time, Craig was leading a double life. And cold-blooded murder. I've learned that evil does walk the world, and it comes in all shapes and sizes, and you can't always tell by looking at somebody, whether they're evil or not. Beware, extreme passion can lead to shocking consequences. February, 1992. Craig and Stephanie Rabinowitz live in Penn Valley, just outside of Philadelphia. They're a newly married young couple and seem very much in love. Craig and Stephanie seemed as much in love as two people could possibly be. It was the kind of marriage that people would aspire to have. It seemed very supporting, very loving. 25-year-old Stephanie is in her final months of law school. Her whole life is falling into place perfectly. Stephanie is an attractive woman with long, dark, wavy hair, very friendly looking and very pretty with a bright smile. She was outgoing, bubbly, someone who you'd like to strike up a conversation with. She was extremely diligent and worked very, very hard. Twenty-nine-year-old Craig is less educated than his spouse and has always bounced between careers. But for Stephanie, he's her soulmate and has been since the moment they met. Craig is about 6'1", 215 pounds, sort of brown, scraggly hair, and a bit of a puppy dog face, and sort of a sadness about his eyes, but also a very outwardly friendly looking person and um, sort of charismatic in a strange way. Well, everybody has met people in their lives that they instantly like, that they want to hang around with, that they are friendly with. That's the type of personality that Craig Rabinowitz had. Craig and Stephanie have been sweethearts since they met at summer camp, when Stephanie was just 16 and Craig 20. Stephanie was very intense, very single-minded. And from the time she met him, there was never anybody else for her. And Craig loves and adores Stephanie, too. I think Stephanie was a catch. She was bright, motivated, had a bright future, and he really liked that about her. 
I think that at the beginning he felt that he found his soulmate, he found his best friend, and that he and Stephanie were going to be together forever. I think that Stephanie understood him in a way that a lot of people did not. She sort of brought out the best in him. Their marriage is just two years old and seems idyllic from the outside. But at least one part of their marriage is deeply disappointing for Craig. Craig said that he and Stephanie uh, weren't really having sex at this point. And Craig was growing increasingly impatient with his wife. He said that no matter how many times he held her and told her how beautiful she was, it didn't work. And he felt rejected by Stephanie sexually, and he started resenting her. In fact, Craig has a secret, a dark, intimate secret. Nobody knew it, not, not this circle of friends or not his parents or her parents or anything. But at the same time, Craig was leading a double life. Far away from the leafy suburbs, Craig's secret life takes him to downtown Philadelphia and into the arms of a woman who lets him fulfill his every sexual fantasy. I think that Craig felt very entitled to sexual gratification. He's a man, this is what he needs. It doesn't matter how he gets it. It doesn't matter who he hurts to do it. It's his right and nothing's going to stop him. The woman's name is Taylor, but this isn't an affair. Craig has to pay for his visits. Taylor is a prostitute. I think the fact that Craig was already seeing prostitutes really says a lot about his level of commitment to Stephanie, his feelings toward her. I think he was very superficial. Taylor is one of several prostitutes who operate out of J.P. Tiffany's, an escort service that offers far more than just an attractive girl on the client's arm. Craig is a very insecure man, uh, constantly craving attention, but he also was a guy who enjoyed sex and wanted to have it whenever he wanted it, not necessarily with Stephanie. Craig is a regular. Craig had a, a routine that he liked to follow. First, he takes a shower. I think that the water was important to Craig in terms of, of the cleansing effects of water and also the soft touch. After the shower, Taylor and Craig move to a massage room. The fact that the prostitutes look so different from Stephanie, maybe the fact that they represent more of a fantasy, something very different than what he had at home. Taylor caresses and massages every inch of Craig's body. The focus was just on him. He just was laying there passively and he was a recipient of all of the attention. And I think it was a great relief for him to sort of lay back and just be taken care of. Following the sensual massage, as a paying customer, Craig gets the full treatment. Oral sex was an important part of Craig's ritual with the prostitutes because he needed not only for a sexual release, but sort of a validation of himself as a man. He felt that this was something that he had missed and that was, should have been rightfully his all along. Stephanie has no idea of Craig's visits to call girls. She thinks her life is almost perfect. Her law degree is going well, and she has a great job prospect at a top Philadelphia firm. But successes like these only alienate Craig. 
and push him further into the sordid world of prostitution. I think Craig felt very emasculated by Stephanie's professional success because he was not as successful and always felt that he should have been pushed harder in high school by his parents. He felt that he should have been every bit as successful as she was, and the more success she achieved, outwardly Craig had to appear supportive and pleased, but inwardly this began to really grate on him. What was strange about Craig was he had a desire to be a member of the upper crust, even though he wasn't. He wanted to impress other people, even though there was nothing really there that was impressive about him. He sort of had these delusions of grandeur, but he wasn't really willing to admit there was a discrepancy between what he wanted and what he actually had accomplished. It's not enough for Craig that he's having his sexual needs fulfilled. He wants to look successful to the world too. So Craig turns his attention to being an entrepreneur. I think for Craig, starting your own business was a shortcut. The good way he sees of, of jumping forward to a high level of income and a high level of status. He didn't need to work his way up a ladder the way Stephanie had. It would be a way to compete with her at a, a higher level. The idea behind Craig's business is to buy latex gloves abroad very cheaply and then sell them at a profit in Philadelphia. Much of the capital for his venture comes from those closest to him and Stephanie. Craig's investors are his circle of friends who are lawyers and professionals and successful people and his mother and his in-laws. And, you know, those are the type of people you would go to if you wanted to get them, hush, hush, here, I got a great business opportunity for you. And they trusted him. I think that Craig loved money. I think it represented everything to him. It represented a means of status, of uh, impressing other people. Craig immediately starts generating significant income. Stephanie sees it as just another part of their perfect world falling into place. I think for Stephanie to see Craig finally doing something and it was finally working out, that must have been very impressive for her. You have to remember at this time that Stephanie had no idea that Craig was having extramarital affairs with prostitutes. He was being very attentive at home. He seemed very supportive of her. He seemed understanding the fact that she was no longer overtly interested in sex. So she really had no idea of the double life that he was creating. Craig is finally leading the life he feels like he deserves. His business has improved his relationship with Stephanie. And at the same time, he's kept her in the dark about his romps with prostitutes. In August 1992, Craig is in the mood to celebrate his good fortune and makes the journey to J.P. Tiffany's escort service. I would say Craig certainly prefers fantasy to reality, especially because he sees himself as this high-level roller. He sees himself as special and may see himself as unique. Taylor is unavailable, but she has recommended another girl to make Craig happy. And Craig enjoys the change. But his fun is about to be rudely interrupted. What Craig didn't know while he was carrying on these various liaisons is that these uh, activities are also being watched by, by the Philadelphia police. They had undercover agents in there, and they were setting up a sting to break this circle of prostitutes. In August 1992, Craig is arrested for solicitation. His wife, Stephanie, is about to learn the truth about his sordid exploits. Their perfect-looking world seems on the brink of collapse. 
But what neither of them knows yet is that Craig's secret double life will end in more lust, bigger lies, and murder. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover. And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Craig and Stephanie Rabinowitz are the picture-perfect young married couple. Stephanie recently graduated from law school, and Craig has just started his own business. But there's a problem. Craig has been seeing prostitutes behind his wife's back and has just been arrested for solicitation. Had Stephanie known what Craig was doing, Stephanie would have been disgusted, appalled, and I'm sure that she and Craig would have been divorced very quickly. I think that Craig was afraid of losing Stephanie because he was afraid that he would lose everything he had worked for to present himself as somebody who was socially acceptable and socially popular. Craig is desperate that Stephanie not find out about his cheating and secrets. When Craig was arrested, he was able to get immunity by testifying against the owner of the escort service. And therefore, Stephanie didn't have to learn anything about this, this secret life that he was leading. Coming so dangerously close to having his double life exposed shocks Craig. He stops seeing prostitutes and for the time being puts all of his energy into his business. By 1995, Stephanie is an up-and-coming lawyer at a top Philadelphia firm. 
And in June, they purchased their very first house. To maintain his image of status, Craig refused to live except in the best place. He insisted on buying a house in Lower Marion. You think about 90210, which is Beverly Hills, people want to live there. People want to live in Lower Marion because that's the place to live. I think at this time, uh, Stephanie is very pleased with Craig. They're living sort of the American dream. In May 1996, Stephanie gives birth to a baby girl. But while Stephanie and her family are elated, Craig quickly becomes dissatisfied. I think Craig was so narcissistic and self-centered that uh, he wanted his pleasures whenever he wanted his pleasures, and uh, that having a child and being a daddy was more of an irritant to him than it was a responsibility that you accepted out of love. When Craig's daughter was born, he said that he felt more alone than he ever had in his life. Any attention that Stephanie had given Craig, um, which had diminished over the years, was now transferred to the baby. And the feeling of being emasculated just got worse. He realized that his marriage was false, and he felt trapped. Once again, Craig is desperate for an escape from what he sees as a sterile home life. With his new daughter just a month old, Craig drives into Philadelphia's waterfront district. Within this quiet, nondescript shopping center lies one of the city's most prestigious gentlemen's clubs. The overt sexuality spoke to him because you walked in and there were neon lights and um, girls in all manner of undress. And of course, the idea that he would go in there and, and people would be literally falling all over themselves to lavish attention upon him was something that fed a need of his. It's not surprising that Craig chose the top strip club in Philadelphia. That's how he perceived himself, that he was special or unique, or that he was going where you're supposed to go, where successful businessmen and politicians and anyone who's anyone in Philadelphia goes. Of course, that's where he would go. One of the strippers came over and started talking with him and chatting him up and asking if he would like a lap dance. All of this was immensely appealing to Craig. But then something extraordinary happens, and it will change his and Stephanie's destiny forever. Craig notices a blonde walking by, and he stops the conversation in mid-sentence. And he turns to the girl and says, who was that? Her name is Summer. Summer is very attractive, tall, shapely blonde, very athletic, long legs, well-endowed and very sultry-looking, and uh, that would appeal to his desirous nature. Forgetting all about the other dancer, Craig falls under Summer's spell as she twists her body to the music. Craig was infatuated with Summer uh, the moment they met. She was a blonde bombshell and had this fantastic body and knew how to use her sexuality. Some people were happy to just sit there and watch the women dance on the stage, and uh, Craig wasn't happy with being considered just one of the people. And so he asked her, is there some place we can go that's a little more private? And she said, well, yeah, we can go to the Champagne Room, which was a place reserved for very good customers. Sex with customers is strictly forbidden, but there are other pleasures Craig can enjoy. Some are offered Craig, what they call a lap dance, where the stripper would sit on your lap and gyrate. Dancing only for him, it's all part of an obvious seduction. 
Striptease sort of plays on one of the most obvious elements of human psychology is that we always want most what we're not going to have. And so the element of tease in a striptease is the most important one. And Summer knew how to use that to great effect. And Craig just wanted her more and more from the moment he met her. I think for Craig, Summer represented all these attributes he thought a woman should have that Stephanie didn't have. And something that he really felt he needed, that he deserved, that he was entitled to. Craig leaves the strip club thinking he has met the woman of his dreams and the fulfillment of his fantasies. After that first meeting, Craig is hooked, and Summer knows it. He begins visiting the strip club on a frighteningly regular basis. Craig became so obsessed with Summer, he would go in two or three times a week. He'd show up around lunchtime and stay until 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening. It was nothing for him to go in there and spend $800 or so in an afternoon. The more time Craig spends with Summer, the more personal the relationship becomes. They did a lot of talking, as, as much as action. And he would tell her about his marriage and his, his new baby. And he, he tried to give the impression that he loved his wife, but he wasn't in love with her. Summer's sort of a sounding board for that inner voice that he has inside, telling him that he deserves to go out of the marriage because he needs things and he is entitled to them and Stephanie's not providing them. I think that he immediately latched onto her and I think she latched onto him as a source of income. Summer has no reason to doubt that Craig can afford to spend so freely on her, but Craig is hiding something. And not just from Summer, but from every single person he knows. Craig does everything he can to create the impression that the company is a going concern, is doing well. He puts on a good show. Of course, I don't believe the business ever made any money. It was never even approaching the um, possibility of making money. Craig's business didn't really exist. There was no business there. I don't believe he ever sold any gloves, so there was never any money to pay back out investors. In fact, as 1996 draws to a close, Craig is in love with a stripper and has amassed debts of over $400,000 with no way to pay them. Greg Rabinowitz has fallen for an exotic dancer named Summer just months after his wife gives birth to their first child. Not only is he deceiving his wife about his clandestine visits to the strip club, but he's also hiding the true nature of his business venture. What Craig did was he went to all of his friends and his family and he got them to contribute money and then he would pay that money to the earlier investors who were expecting a return of interest on their initial contributions. That's classically called a Ponzi scheme. Craig's business is a fraud. I believe that Stephanie believed everything that Craig told her was the truth. In essence, not only had Craig defrauded her family or friends and others, he had defrauded Stephanie as well. As long as Stephanie remains unaware of Craig's business scam, he believes he can juggle money until everyone gets paid. But by 1997, 
Craig's debts are over $400,000. And in summer, he's found another pricey addiction. Craig is constantly lavishing uh, expensive gifts on Summer and buying her whatever she wants, uh, diamond earrings, clothing, anything that she saw at Saks Fifth Avenue or Bloomingdale's, um, Craig would get for her right away. Summer did not want to dance forever. She said that she felt 25 going on 40. And I think that Summer found in Craig uh, something that she was missing as well. Um, here's somebody who was willing to attend to her financial needs and somebody who um, seemed to be uh, willing to lift her up out of her rather dreary situation. Away from the club, Summer is mother to a five-year-old boy and has recently struggled to raise the money to move into a new home in Northeast Philadelphia. When Summer tells Craig that she has a child, I think that Craig might have liked that because it would have put him in a power position where he understood that she's a single mom, there's no man in the picture, she's dancing to support herself, and, and he can be the, the knight in shining armor. Sensing an opportunity, Craig offers to buy Summer and her son furniture for their new home. Summer readily accepts, and on a crisp January afternoon in 1997, she and Craig take their relationship out of the strip club and into the real world. Summer thinks that Craig has all of this money and he's a very successful businessman um, and is trying to bleed him for all he's worth. Craig spends a total of $8,500 on furniture for Summer and her son. I believe that going outside the club, Craig is beginning to think that he might have some future with Summer uh, as a mistress or a girlfriend or a future wife or something like that. I don't believe that in Summer's mind there ever was any chance of that, but in his mind there was. At this point, Craig had transferred all of his romantic attachment from Stephanie to Summer. Craig has crossed the line. His fantasy life is beginning to seem like a new and achievable reality. At what point Craig turned to Summer and told her that she would make a good wife and make the perfect wife? Craig said that Summer fulfilled his fantasies times one million um, and that she was everything that he had ever wanted and everything that he ever needed. Summer was his soulmate and she was the first person that showed him everything a relationship could be. In Craig's mind, he truly believes he and Summer can start a life together. I think Summer represents a freedom for Craig. I think she represents someone that he feels he can be open with. I think that he enjoys the way he looks in her eyes and the fantasy in some ways has become reality. But divorcing Stephanie isn't an option for Craig. There would be no possibility that Craig could divorce Stephanie at this point because a divorce lays bare all of your financial situation and it would become known the extent of his fraud with his friends and his family and the fraud that he's perpetrating on the community. Uh, he would not be able to bear the shame of that uh, publicly. So a divorce was totally out of the question. Craig desperately needs to be free of debt free of shame, and free to be with Summer. But his desires will turn horribly violent and deadly. Married father of one, Craig Rabinowitz is over $400,000 in debt and in love with a stripper named Summer. 
He can't divorce his wife for fear his fraudulent business will be exposed. For Craig, being exposed as a fraud and a cheat would be devastating because that was sort of his career. He worked so hard for many years to create this perfect image of himself, and he couldn't bear to lose that. Reality is closing in on Craig. He desperately needs money to clear his debts before he can entertain the idea of a life with Summer. And there's no limit to what he'll do to get it. I believe that in January of 1997, Craig's debts had reached the point where there was no way he was going to be able to pay them. So he decides that the way out from underneath this and so that he can have a life with Summer is that he's going to kill Stephanie. On January 30th, Craig takes Stephanie to increase their life insurance. Stephanie's current life insurance is worth over $300,000. And under Craig's supervision, she takes out two more policies totaling almost $2 million. When Craig takes out the additional insurance, now you can put a price tag on what he values Stephanie's life to be, and that's $1.8 million. It probably wasn't very hard for Craig to convince Stephanie to increase their life insurance. They have a child, and he's just thinking of the future and making sure that the family's provided for whether uh, he or Stephanie becomes deceased. Stephanie is a walking paycheck. But Craig can't cash in right away. When you take out life insurance like Craig did, that doesn't become effective for several months. There's going to be a lag of, I think, three months before the actual policy becomes in effect. So that's the minimum amount of time that Stephanie has left. In the meantime, Craig intensifies his involvement with Summer. It is not an accident that the decision is made to take out the additional life insurance and Craig's spending on summer goes through the roof because the decision to murder her has already been made so he knows there's a pot of gold at the other end so he may as well live it up with summer. Over the next three months, Craig spends almost $30,000 at the strip club alone. I think Craig had an addictive personality and summer was definitely an addiction not only for the sexual release, but for the emotional sustenance that she gave him. It was a drug that he could not get enough of. I mean, he just couldn't stop himself. By April 1997, Craig's debts have increased to over half a million dollars, and the pressure from his investors is mounting. The investors in the glove company are beginning to ask for their money back. They want their interest, they want their principal, they want to be paid. And Craig makes statements to them, don't worry, you'll all be paid by the end of April. Craig cannot delay any longer. He calls the insurance companies repeatedly to check on the status of his policies. Craig was very close to the breaking point. He felt very scared and very stressed. And everything was piling upon each other. Everything he had very carefully worked toward was about to come falling apart. Finally, Craig gets the answer he needs. Craig got assurances from the representative that yes, the life insurance was in place and Stephanie's life was fully insured. Craig is almost ready to take that last extreme step. But there's one thing missing. On April 28th, Craig goes to his doctor and complains that he's having trouble sleeping. The doctor takes him at his word, prescribes a sleeping medication called Ambien. Craig said he used sleeping pills with Stephanie because he didn't want her to feel any pain. He just wanted her to be gone. 
He enjoys dinner with Stephanie and her parents at a local Thai restaurant. And at approximately 8 p.m., he drives his wife back to their house on Winding Way. When they got home from dinner, Craig said that he felt everything closing in on him, so much to the point that he could scarcely breathe. At that point, Craig said, I'm going to take the baby for a walk. So he bundled up the child and put her in a stroller, and he was gone. Craig said that Summer actually left him a voicemail, and the voicemail said, oh, hi, sweetie. It was great talking to you today. I love you, I miss you, and I will talk to you tomorrow. This would have maybe have been a confirmation that what he was doing was right, that she was the one for him, that she was basically replacing what Stephanie had been to him. Summer's message may have given him a push toward actually committing the murder that night. Craig said, well, you and I just have a beer and sit down and relax a little bit. It's been a long day. Leaving Stephanie in the living room, Craig goes to the kitchen to fetch her final after-dinner drink. The Ambien are capsules, and I believe that he opened the capsule and poured the powder into her beer and then gave her beer, which she drank. So now you have a combination of a sleeping aid and alcohol in, in a not-a-very-big woman. By approximately 9.15 p.m., Stephanie is starting to feel the effects of the sedative. The most probable thing that happened is Stephanie began to feel lightheaded, woozy, very, very sleepy from the combination of the ambient and the beer. It's very difficult to carry a dead weight upstairs. So I think it is likely that he guided her into the bathroom, but she got there on her own power. Craig then undressed her, put her into the bathtub. Craig will make it seem as if Stephanie accidentally drowned in the bathtub. What I believe happened is Stephanie slips into unconsciousness and the plan is working perfectly. He then dips her head under the water and she begins to drown. At this point, the urge to live overcomes the power of the sedative and she wakes up. Stephanie is panicking, desperate for air, as she looks up into the face of the man she loves. April 29th, 1997. Greg Rabinowitz has decided to kill his wife, Stephanie so he can cash in on almost $2 million of life insurance to clear his crippling debts and run away with a stripper named Summer. He has drugged Stephanie with Ambien and is now attempting to drown her in the bathtub. Stephanie slips into unconsciousness and the plan is working perfectly. He then dips her head under the water and she begins to drown. At this point, the urge to live overcomes the power of the sedative, and she wakes up. Well, now a huge problem has presented itself for Craig, because now his wife is staring up at him, watching him try to drown her. So now he has no choice but to strangle her. Craig grips his hands around Stephanie's neck and squeezes. Strangling is one of the most difficult crimes to commit on the part of the strangler. 
and he was watching her gasp for breath while he had his fingers around her throat. After four minutes of violent struggle, he succeeds. Stephanie is dead. lacks that moral center that we have. He is so twisted and distorted. He sees people as objects to be manipulated. And this is sort of the ultimate manipulation. It's just an extension of what he's always done. Despite the brutal attack, Craig's hands haven't left a mark on Stephanie. When somebody is strangled by hand, the heart stops beating. Now no more blood reaches the surface so that there's no bruising on the outside of the neck. She's dead without a mark on her. So the plan still in his mind is in place because it still looks as though she drowned in the tub. To maintain the appearance of an accident, Craig calls for help. Craig calls 911 and he's very careful to put on the performance of the distraught husband, already setting the stage for this being an accident rather than anything else. Craig says, send somebody quick. My wife has slipped in the bathtub. She cracked her head and drowned. I need some help. I've been trying to resuscitate her, but I can't do it. After Craig hangs up, he hurries back to the bathroom. Craig realizes that he's going to have to put on an act, that he is totally upset about this situation. So he jumps in the bathtub with Stephanie. He appears to be trying to resuscitate her. Within minutes, a lower Marion police officer is on the scene. He's putting on an Oscar performance now because everything depends on convincing the police that this is an accident. He's begging for help, said, she's too heavy, I can't get her out. Can you give me some help? This is a very experienced policeman, and he knew right away there was no chance that she was going to be revived. He could clearly tell she was dead. While the responding officer makes his notes at the scene, Stephanie is rushed to nearby Lankanaw Hospital and is pronounced dead at 1.25 a.m. I remember being in the office and getting a phone call indicate that Stephanie died in the bathtub. I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. This was a lovely, young, intelligent woman who would have been a great mom who was taken much too young. For Craig, it appears as if everything has gone according to plan. There is no reason at this point to treat Stephanie's death as a homicide. The initial reports to me were a young woman fell in the bathtub and either hit her head and died or drowned. Craig had planned it so there would be no suspicion of murder, and it was working. Craig also makes sure to tell police that there were no signs of a break-in. But that's actually the brilliance of his plan, because he does not want there to be any suggestion that this is a killing, because he does not want there to be an autopsy. It looks as though Craig will get away with murdering Stephanie. But for the fact that we had a coroner in our county who was a world-famous forensic pathologist, she would have gone in the ground, and no one would have been the wiser. It's a critical decision. At noon on April 30th, the autopsy is performed. It reveals the truth that Stephanie's death was no accident. 
the autopsy very quickly determined that Stephanie was murdered. It was actually very easy to figure out. Once the pathologist opened up her neck and, and took the skin away, there was a bruising pattern around her neck that fit with fingers. The brutal murder of a young woman in an affluent neighborhood ensures the case becomes front page news. While the press speculates on the identity of the killer, the police have only one suspect. There were only three people in the house at the time, and one of them was dead. One of the cops said, I think the baby's off the hook. So that left only Craig. On May 5th, the media frenzy goes into overdrive as Craig Rabinowitz is arrested on suspicion of murder. Craig continues to profess his innocence despite evidence to the contrary. And I think this really speaks to his investment in the facade that he's put up. He's so invested in his persona that he is loath to let it go. But investigators need solid evidence to bring him to trial. So they begin digging into Craig's background. Philadelphia assistant DA, who I was acquainted with, called me and said that he had investigated a case previously involving a prostitution ring where Craig Rabinowitz was one of the people patronizing the prostitutes. And one of the detectives got an anonymous phone call and this guy says, I have reason to believe that Craig was deeply involved with this woman named Summer. Now I had proof that Craig did not lead the squeaky clean life that everyone claimed that he did. The tale of the salesman and the stripper soon fills Philadelphia's front pages. But Summer is quick to distance herself from Craig. When police started questioning Summer, she said, oh, from, from my point of view, it was strictly businesslike. You know, he would come in, he'd give me money, and then he'd leave. Craig's image is destroyed. But an obsession with a stripper and affairs with prostitutes aren't proof of murder. Next, the police conduct an extensive search of the Rabinowitz household. As we searched the residence, in the master bedroom, we found a piece of notebook paper. And one side of the page had initials next to it that I knew corresponded to the initials of investors in Craig's company. And on the other side, it had how much money he could expect to get in the event of Stephanie's death. And then the leftover money was money he could use to run off and start a life with Summer. At that moment, I knew that we were holding the smoking gun in our hand. According to his own calculations, after he collected the insurance, sold his house and his car, Craig Rabinowitz could pay off his debts and still walk away from Stephanie's death $1.5 million better off. He is charged with murder, and a trial date is set for October 30th. Craig held out to the very end for the same reason why he couldn't divorce Stephanie, because he was so self-centered and so concerned about how people felt about him that he could not admit that he had done it. But on the first day of the trial, there is a final shocking twist. Craig does the unimaginable one more time. Craig became very emotional. He was crying. And he said, I had a dream last night. He said, I dreamed that I was sitting around a table with Stephanie, with my dead father, with my dead father-in-law. And we were all holding hands. And Stephanie told me, Craig, you've got to do what's right. At 10.25 a.m., 
Craig Rabinowitz pleads guilty to first-degree murder of his wife, Stephanie. Craig Rabinowitz was a murderer who killed a young woman who had no right to die. I've learned that evil does walk the world, and uh, it comes in all shapes and sizes, and you can't always tell by looking at somebody whether they're evil or not. But you certainly do learn it eventually. Nickelodeon was kid everything, but that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set, an ID true crime event, Sunday, March 17th at 9, on ID and stream on Max.